Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Today, we're spreading our wings to look at a different intersection of disciplines. What happens when you bring together medical knowledge, programming knowledge, and investment knowledge all in one person? Our guest today, Dr. Krishna Yeshwant, has trained and practiced in all three of these disciplines. He has been with GV since its inception in 2009 and now invests in dozens of companies and serves on the board of many of them. Remarkably, he still somehow finds time to practice as a doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is part of Harvard Medical School. What insights into medical practice does a computer programmer bring? And how did his work on facial reconstruction surgery help surgeons do their job better? Dr. Krishna Yeshwant, great to see you today, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I feel um, like I've listened to all the episodes, and uh, I know you guys as friends also, so I feel like I, I'm, there's a lot of pressure to kind of keep the the quality level up to what you guys have done, and I, I, I'm anticipating I'll be probably um, more informal uh, just because we've all been friends for so long. Yeah, I, I don't know what level of professionality to bring to this, but maybe Good. we just <laughs> just have the conversation as it as it unfolds. I think maybe just to kick off for people to get to know you a little bit better and to kind of know your story, you know, I'll just I'll just mention that you you could have been really anything that you wanted in life. You know, you could have been a physician or a technologist or an entrepreneur, and at this point, you've ended up in venture capital. And I'm curious why. I always followed venture capital as a field. Um, growing up, I'd have the software packages, you know, you actually buy software and, and it comes in shrink wrap. The get box, the yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, you kind of look on the back of such a box. And uh, at least when I was growing up, you realized many of the companies were on this road called El Camino Real in the Bay Area. And um, I remember coming to undergrad, uh, having read about all these companies, and then getting interested in where they came from. And then driving on that road and kind of seeing the companies, uh, you know, you'd have like a Safeway over here. And then like uh, the one that I'm remembering is like the B operating system uh, company kind of right across the street. And to me, it was like uh, going to Hollywood or something. You just kind of see all these uh, amazing uh, companies. And then you started to see seeing kind of the venture capital studios around as well, Kleiner Perkins and and whatnot. And I just thought it was, it was kind of this... Um, unusual career where people could kind of just follow where technology was going, where it could be pragmatic, you know, being able to take a step back and look at where the world might go. I just found it always to be a phenomenal spot in the industry. And then when Google Ventures was kind of starting to come together, just the opportunity to be part of that seemed amazing. So you you went to undergraduate at, at Stanford, right? Mm-hmm. And and you did computer science all the way through, and you, and you started a couple companies, or at least one, while you were in undergraduate, right? Yeah. Well, so I, I went to undergrad, and if you'd asked me day one of undergrad, I said I would probably said I'm pre med, and then I went to I went to the pre med like intro meeting. You know, they gather everybody together and see here's what pre med's going to be like. And then I was really into computers, uh, and so I went to the intro for the computer science curriculum, and. Uh, it was just obvious to me that I'm I'm probably more like these computer science uh, folks. At Stanford, you have to do a senior project, so you kind of go through 
freshman, sophomore, junior year. And then kind of around the end of junior year, you kind of put together this senior project. Um, well, I had, I had a friend, as with so many things, it was like, I figured the two of us should work on this together. We were two young students in the middle of the Bay Area in 1997. And the thing that you do then is you start a company. And so we, we said, well, okay, like, let's try and do this as a consulting company for the summer. We'd done the, the math and realized that, you know, you could go work at an Apple or a, you know, an HP or something like that. Um, but if we could do, if we could make websites for people uh, and use some of this kind of tech, quote unquote, technology that we developed to help build a database backed website, we could make something like 10 times as much money over the, over the, it was, it was as stupid as that, as, as to the thinking. It was a get rich quick scheme over the, over the, for a summer job. Is that how it started? Kind of. It was like, yeah, it was like, yeah, you could make some money and, and, and then, yeah, like how do you start a company? Like I'd read a lot about it. I'd been tracking these companies and these venture folks, but it's not obvious how you go from nothing to starting a company. You, usually what you see is the fully formed company. Uh, afterwards, it's been financed and, and somebody has written an article about it. And so I just found it very intriguing as to like, well, how does that process even work? And so, and so we proceeded to hire a lot of our friends uh, from undergrad. And then we started this company that remarkably, a couple of people gave us you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to get started. We rented a house in Santa Cruz, and you could already tell that this is going to go So, you know, so none of us had really had a software job before. We'd converted this technology into kind of a company, uh, really a consulting company, which is the hardest business model uh, of sorts out there because you first do the work and then you get paid. Or at least that's the way we were doing it at the time. And so we more or less did everything one could do wrong. We've made all the mistakes uh, in it. Um, you know, hiring your friends, <laughs> it means, makes it very hard to fire them uh, if, if things aren't going well or give honest feedback along the way. We all live together, <laughs> so you could never really have a moment to yourself uh, on it. Uh, but the thing that we did right was we started a company in 1997 in the Bay Area. Uh, and so... Uh, <laughs> We, you know, we could make a lot of mistakes. Location, location, and, location. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I can't overemphasize like how many chances we got at that. Um, it was an amazing experience looking back on it. It was a really terrible experience going through it. It really made me take a step back afterwards and think about a lot of fundamental things that led to getting comfortable ultimately with doing it again and are pretty fundamental to how I think of investing and venture and, and all the stuff that we get to work on together now. What, what were some of those insights that you that you came to after the after the end of that first company? I think the biggest one was a question of how do you trust people in a complex environment. Mm -hmm. uh, my experience was how do you figure out how to trust one another in that environment where you can't tell who's going to show up and who isn't, and it's really painful. It's really costly to be out in the middle of the ocean in this boat and realize that okay, like this person's not going to carry their weight. Okay, well, so. Honestly, after that first company, which remarkably ended up getting acquired, I found myself wandering around Stanford just in a daze a little bit, thinking about fundamentally that question. I'd lost some confidence in my ability, in my judgment of how I trust people, figure out how to trust people. And that, that led me to this thought, which is pretty fundamental to how I live my life today, you know, which is the framework of uh, expectations and reality. The idea being that if you have your expectations set at a certain level and, and reality comes in under that, that difference is, feels mm. like pain. Uh, and if you have your expectations set relatively low and reality comes in above that, you know, that difference feels like joy. 
And I've kind of applied that in a lot of places. You, you, you know, so when I'm working with somebody, I start off actually not having very high expectations as to how that's going to go. And then we're all lucky enough to work with some amazing people. So you have a low expectation that gets exceeded and then you can raise the expectation and, and, and rapidly get to a place where you can work with people in a very high trust environment, but you don't do what we did back then, which is just start with extremely high trust because starting at, at that level can lead to all sorts of disaster when, um, you know, when the marks missed and it's a simple framing. Uh, but for me, at least that was kind of how I thought about trust, trusting people. And you kind of think of software and technology companies and, and so often the focus is on the technology, but at least the way that I've looked at it since then is realizing that it's actually about the people and about the relationships between those people. And of course, you have to have technology and you have to have innovation and something that's differentiated. But if people can't work together in that sort of trusted fashion, uh, then the whole thing kind of tends to fall apart. That first company, you know, on the face of it was a success because you know, it was acquired. So in that classic sense, it was a success. Yeah. And it was also kind of a success in that you learned something out of some, you know, really difficult, I guess, experiences. And then I think you went and you kind of applied what you learned again to a second company. But what I want to like get back to is, you know, when you first showed up at Stanford, you went to the pre-med gathering and you went to the computer science gathering. And then you kind of in life ended up back at the pre-med gathering, going back into medicine, focusing not so much on computers at the time, but, you know, turning your focus to people. So tell me about how you made that transition from, from software back into, into medicine. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, we'd started a second company, which was in the network security space, uh, which, which also got acquired. And uh, I was working at Symantec, which is the company that acquired that, uh, that second company. And my dad, who's an oncologist, uh, he had to go through a pretty major procedure. And I essentially relocated myself back in Chicago for, for several months, uh, both before and after afterwards. And I had this just very deep feeling that this whole experience was just so brutal and so backwards relative to what it seemed like it could be that, and, and then just, I kind of looked around um, and I was talking to my friends from undergrad and, uh, and from all these companies, these two companies and realizing that nobody who I knew at that time was really thinking about how do you take all of this amazing stuff that's happening in computer science and software engineering in the Bay Area specifically at the time and applying it uh, to healthcare. I'm, I'm sure there were people who were doing that. I just didn't know, I didn't know them. And I, I found myself really thinking deeply on that. And I found myself, uh, you know, reading books and papers that were kind of interesting and ar around how does, where does health come from? What, what, how does, how does life work? And kind of uh, these sorts of things. Uh, it, it got me down several interesting alleys, but one of those threads led me to a couple labs in Boston and I was in Chicago, which is where my parents are, but then I, I moved back to the Bay Area and I was sitting in, in, in the Bay Area looking for things around there, but I kept getting drawn to these couple labs in Boston. Uh, one of them in particular is a lab called the Surgical Planning Lab, which is in the, not the basement of the Brigham and Women's Hospital, but the sub-basement. It's, it's, it's <laughs> like, it turns out that those basements go multiple levels deep. And, um, you know, I emailed them. There's a guy named Ron Kikinis there. So I, I went and met with him. And they were working on bringing computer-aided design principles to surgery. So actually, there was a guy who, who came from Autodesk, which is also a company that's based here in Boston, who had started this project called Slicer. And the idea was, can you bring these different 
imaging modalities, CT scans, MRIs, ultrasound, all these things together in one environment? And can you allow for that environment to uh, compute over the set of images? And then can you use that to uh, enable a surgeon to plan a complex surgical procedure and then to execute that procedure in the operating room? And to me, I was like, okay, yeah, like that's computer science applied to medicine in in a sophisticated way. And like, you're just like, you're bringing computer aided design. There's a whole industry that's already done that. And you can bring that to surgery. And I remember going to visit a surgeon at Mass General, and she was planning a surgical procedure. It was a craniofacial reconstruction for a young child. And I was like, okay, show me how you do this. And and what she did is she took a lateral uh, x-ray like an x-ray from the side of the child's head. And she put a transparency over it. I remember her office overlooked the uh, the Charles River. It's beautiful uh, view. She put it over and then she took uh, a Sharpie and like, you know, traced <laughs> traced the skull oh. uh, onto the transparency, took it off, took a pair of scissors and like, yeah, we're going to make a cut right here. And that was, that was oh. the plan. And I thought, oh, good Lord. Like there's like, oh <laughs> like we should, yeah, like MIT is right across the river. Like we should just, allow these people to spend some time together. And, and that, that, that was kind of my role was to say, okay, I'm going to live in this, I'm going to live with this, this surgical group. And, and they, they put a sun microsystems computer kind of in the corner of their office. And I like slept there and I just, I, I lived there and I lived in their, um, you know, their research group and they were kind enough to let me come to their rounds. And I went into any procedure they would let me go to. And it was through that that I kind of got to both be a computer scientist where I was programming Slicer and kind of coming up with these modules that we would use to both to help improve that platform, but also to um, to enable these sorts of surgical procedures. And to me, if I look back, that was like one of my favorite times in my life. You know, in all of this, I really like talking to patients. You know, they gave me the job to, to, to use the software to print out diagrams of essentially what was going to happen. And then I'd get to sit there with the parents and it was mainly pediatric craniofacial reconstruction. So I got to sit with the parents and talk about, okay, here's what we're going to do. And, you know, you're about to operate on this person's child. And I I found I could find the words to talk people through what was going to happen in a way that was, I think, meaningful. This is often a really life-changing moment for people, uh, for the kid, for the parent, for everybody involved. I can do something meaningful with my words in this. And that's what led me to then go down the path of applying to med school. You know, it felt more like a vocation. I, you know, to me, at least coming to medicine in that way was very much, I was doing it on my own terms. But I, I just found it to be an amazing group of people. The surgeons are, they do dramatically more work than most entrepreneurs and they don't get any equity, you know, <laughs> in it. But, uh, but you know, they're showing up at the office at four or five in the morning to prep for a bunch of procedures that they then do, many of which are very long procedures. And then um, I, I, I was just really moved by it. You know, Krishna, let's maybe fast forward a little bit. And um, I think a lot of people would love to hear the story about how GB came to be. You know, who was the team that brought it together? What were kind of some of the founding principles? You know, in many ways, it's a little bit different than a lot of other corporate venture groups. So maybe you can talk us through that. So for me, I was I was in business school at the time. So I went to med school, did an MD MBA. Uh, in the middle of the MBA, I came to Google for a summer. I joined a group that was run by Megan Smith that was called New Business Development uh, (NBD). And I, I, I sometimes liken that group to uh, if you ever watched that show Silicon Valley. Uh, there's a roof 
where all the CEOs <laughs> who, who came in and acquired, like they kind of just hang out there waiting for their, that's kind of what that group was. Uh, in my opinion, that probably is, I'm sure there was a lot more happening in that group than I fully appreciated. <laughs> you, you're uh, clearly going to get a howler from Sundar for that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that group has since been broken up and it is now d- distributed around Google in different ways. But uh, but at that time, it was the, the, the purpose of the group was to look, well, one, to help with corporate partnerships between various Google products and external entities, but also to look for new areas of business for Google. But you know, they, there was this meeting that that group had every Wednesday and uh, and different people in the group would just talk about different things they were working on. There were people working on energy farms, uh, you know, like solar farms and and different types of energy projects that Google was starting to work on. And there was there were a number of these amazing things. I, I just found it mind bending. You're kind of sitting there and and uh, seeing kind of the scope of what this company Google's was doing across areas that had nothing to do with search. There's just all these other areas. One of the areas was this question of whether or not Google should start a venture fund. Um, and so I was sitting in that meeting and this guy, Bill Maris shows up and he starts talking about, well, we're kind of thinking about a venture fund or, you know, and we don't know what we're call it, but like, if any of you have any ideas, you know, let me know. And this is like 2007. So he's, he's there. Um, the global financial crisis hadn't quite happened yet. So he's talking about this thing. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is the beginning of a venture fund. Like it's like a, the beginning of a supernova or something. To me, it's like, that's a special moment. It doesn't happen every day. And so I, I sent him a note and we proceeded to have a phenomenal set of conversations. Bill started pulling me into looking at companies. Um, the principles for GV evolved during about a year period where we literally talked to anybody who would talk to us about venture capital. So we talked to other corporate entities that have had venture funds for a while. We talked to all of the high quality traditional venture funds that that people know of. And we came away with a couple core insights. Number one is that uh, strategic venture capital tends to be neither strategically valuable nor profitable. Uh, and and so, so we said, okay, like, well, let's not do that. Yes, yes the, best, the worst of all possible worlds. So we said, if we're going to do one thing, let's try to be profitable. And I think that's actually a really contrarian perspective for an entity being formed inside of a company. Looking back 12 years or so now, I think that was exactly the right framing for it because now, Krishna, it, is, it, is it contrarian because is it because you're not strategically aligned with the company that you're in I get to, tell me what's contrarian about that concept of being profit motivated yeah so, so if you imagine let's let's pretend we're we're running a company right yeah we we're going to take some dollars and we're going to put it into a vehicle to make investments 99 percent of the dollars are off making this business more efficient more profitable bigger Okay, well, why why am I taking this one percent and having it go off and do anything that's that's other than that? Why are my shareholders uh, okay with with some of these dollars going off and doing anything other than making the core of the business uh, more profitable? Okay. And and what if what if the venture group uh, invests in something competitive with the ninety nine percent? That can also be pretty uncomfortable, right? And and then there's the other uncomfortable question of like, what if these guys are really successful? You know, venture capital in a traditional framing can be a really profitable endeavor if you if you do it well. And then you can have this situation where the people in this venture fund, you know, might be making more money than the CEO or other things. And that can be uncomfortable as well. So there's all sorts of reasons that these sorts of structures are uncomfortable in a traditional corporate environment. Google's not a traditional corporate environment. And, you know, one of the other dynamics uh, that, that we saw as we, as we brought the pitch forward after evolving it for a year was that Larry and Sergey 
really wanted to see venture capital happen in a different way. To them, I think they said, yeah, they obviously took money from from Sequoia and Kleiner and look, that's probably one of the most legendary investments of all time uh, ever. But I think I think their framing was, look, like venture capitalists tend to be short-sighted. A lot of times they aren't particularly technical. And what would happen if when we put a venture fund together, we brought people into the fund who could really understand the point of what the entrepreneurs are trying to do from a technology perspective? Because if you can take that perspective, then you can you can look at what they're doing over the entirety of their intent, as opposed to getting them to the next financing or getting them to an exit. Let's look at it at, at actually, actually helping those entrepreneurs have the fullness of their impact. As we were going through the thinking on it, just as, as Anthony was bringing up, we said, look, we, we, we want this entity to be independent. We don't want to have it set up so that Google Ventures needs to get sign off from a bunch of product people because that's basically death. Uh, you know, if anybody can say no to your thing and veto it, that means you can't really do anything. And the more complex the organization you're in, the more people there are to say no. So we said, nope, we're not going to do it like that. It's going to be set up where this group of investors is going to make the decision uh, as to what we're going to invest in. That could be something very far afield from anything that's core to Google, or it could be something directly competitive. We need to have that level of flexibility. We're going to look for great companies, great entrepreneurs. We're going to help them. That's, that's like, it's like nothing more complicated than that. But but the contrarian thing is we're going to do it in a way that's focused on being profitable. We brought that to the Alphabet board in 2008, right in the middle of the financial crisis. Uh, this is the other contrarian kind of piece to Google Ventures was uh, that's when Sequoia sent out their rest in peace, good times uh, deck. A lot of venture funds, respected funds were shutting down. Google said, this is a perfect moment to start a venture fund. Uh, and you know what? It turned out to be exactly the right moment to start the <laughs> venture fund. You know, We showed up <laughs> with $100 million, which at that time was a lot of fresh capital to invest just as the rest of the venture industry was shutting down. I mean, it's just an amazing thing about the company is that, yeah, just, just in that moment when it was scariest to do something, uh, Google said, yeah, let's, let's get going and do it. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we as a fund do that for companies day in and day out, because I think we can take a perspective that we're not necessarily doing momentum investing. We're not looking for the place where it's just growing. You know, we're seeing something perhaps that, that may not be obvious. Uh, and th- that tends to be a mispriced asset. And, and to us, we could kind of get in and be supportive and, and, and see that story through. Can you maybe tell me, um, or just give, give an example of one of those investments that, that, that has it all that's, that's, you know, it's had a great upside. It's been a, a marriage of technology and a place in time, but also something that's been meaningful because you do invest in, in a lot of companies that change people's lives and, and, and their health. So what's a particularly memorable or meaningful investment that, that you've made? There's a lot. Um, I don't know. I mean, Flatiron is probably the easiest one to talk about just because it's one people, people know a bit about, um, you know, that, that, that's a company for, for, you know, for folks listening that, that works in the oncology IT space. It was based off of an investment that we made in another company called Foundation Medicine, which is an oncology sequencing company, tumor sequencing company. Uh, you guys may remember this. Anthony might remember. It's like, you know, we were kind of, we were hearing the pitch for Foundation Medicine. And actually one of my tech colleagues, uh, it was Joe Krause, um, you know, was in the, in the pitch. And I think just barely understood like what was happening with this company. Like, okay, they're sequencing tumors and like, what's going on? Uh, but he asked a really insightful question after the company 
uh, had left, which was, okay, I get it. So you guys sequence these tumors, you get the data, you help figure out what drug might be useful, therapeutic might be useful for that patient. You kind of send that back to the physician. Okay, then what? Like, how do you know what happened to that patient uh, over time? And, I, you know, I had a really insufficient answer to that, but enough enough that we actually made the investment in foundation medicine. But then you were kind of in on the board of foundation medicine and realize that actually we have a real problem because those patients, we are kind of recommending, uh, we're sending, we're sending these results back to patients and, and we actually don't know what's happening to those folks. Did they get the drug? Uh, did it work? And, you know, we, we built all sorts of mock-ups to try and get oncologists to put this data in themselves and, and any physicians who's listening and know that that was a ridiculous you know, effort. We tried, but physicians are busy. And to me, at least, you know, that's, that's kind of where Flatiron's approach just seemed, you know, really simple, but effective, which is just brute force rather than trying to uh, convince physicians to do something that they don't have time to do. Let's just integrate at the health system level and ingest that data to try and figure out, okay, what's happening. But, but once you kind of go there and do that work, you realize that finding out what happened to these foundation medicine patients is just one of like a million different things you can do once you put the work into ingesting and curating that data set. And where Flatiron ended up going was really, well, if you have that sort of data, why don't you work on accelerating clinical trials? It's the single largest expense in drug discovery and development. And what I love about it as a space is that, at least for us as GV, it spans two worlds that usually don't talk to each other. But you have to understand how the environment of a clinical setting works. And then you also have to understand therapeutics and how development uh, works. And there's not very many people who are comfortable in both of those areas. But Flatiron was one that kind of was like, oh, yeah, you're going to have to bridge that. And what I, again, love about it is there's so much to do there but so few people who are actually working at that intersection. And there's, there's more now. But, but I continue to find that to be a tremendously interesting space and that interdisciplinary uh, work that I think has always been part of theory and practice. I, you know, to me, I, I think there's an infinity of uh, opportunities at those intersections. And many of the people you guys have interviewed, I think, speak to that. And if I had to bet on one thing, it's that these white spaces between things are going to continue to being very productive, valuable, these are the areas that the world needs uh, folks to be working in. The space at the intersection of the life sciences and data sciences, you know, all three of us and many others are, are talking about it a lot. What's your thought on where the great companies will come from? So some people say, you know, the alphabets or the Microsofts of the world will hire doctors and learn healthcare. You know, other people say United can hire software engineers uh, just like anybody else. And then there's a third school of thought that is, you need to build the companies fundamentally different from the ground up, and there's no way an existing player can migrate into it. What's your thesis? I try really hard not to succumb to kind of false dichotomies uh, on it. Like uh, it, the world is often framed and it's like, is it this or that? And I, I think if there's one learning that I have looking back over, you know, over this time, it's like, no, actually the world is incredibly rich. There's an infinity of ways to be successful. So my, my bet would be, uh, that over time, we're going to see all of those things happen, right? United is going to do stuff becoming more technologically sophisticated. Google is going, and uh, Apple and Amazon, they're going to hire a bunch of doctors, you know, and then also there's going to be entities in this in this new domain uh, that doesn't quite exist. So I think all of that's going to happen. With that said, not to sidestep the question, maybe what does the world need 
you know, or, or, or how do we get these things to happen at these intersections in, in the fullest and grandest possible way? I find myself increasingly convinced that it has to be new. It's not this or that. It's, it's a both. And the both is so hard to get right in, inside of a company. Honestly, it's so hard to get right in ourselves as individuals. I remember hearing your interview with uh, List Garden. It was just like, yeah, she's, she's kind of struggling with that as to like, okay, am I a protein scientist or am I a, and like, I think she took the right view, which is like, yeah, I'm both, I'm all of these things. And I, and I think that you see that with all of the people you interview is like, yeah, you're not a this or a that. That's probably why they're in your podcast, which is like, no, I'm a both. I, I think that's a hard thing to achieve as an individual because it's a question of identity, but all the interesting stuff happens in the place where you're both. And I think that's the same thing that happens in companies. The interesting companies are not this or that, they're both. If you can do it, if you can show that there's there's value in what you're starting to do as an early stage company, you can access almost any amount of capital to to bring to the table and do that. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. I want to ask you one last question. There's this, a lot of people do me search, right? So the, the actual topics that they investigate generally come from someplace in their lives, whether or not in an abstract way or in a concrete way you've kind of interwoven your own personal philosophy or or perspective into some of the companies that you're talking about, right? This blending across different areas, which you yourself have done, and then recognizing companies that are undervalued or in these white spaces. So I'm curious, how much of yourself do you put into these kinds of selections and into, into the kinds of investments that you you look for and then the relationships that you foster? So for me, I'm putting all of myself into it. So hopefully, I'm I'm sure you guys see that. Like, uh, but I'd actually say that what I think is actually happening in these companies, it's not like I'm putting myself into them, and that's why the companies are successful. I think it's more that I'm putting out a beacon that what I think is interesting is this intersection, you know. And then usually, I'm doing it with other people who are similarly putting out that beacon, and that's just attracting other people who are just facing that those same questions in their lives. I think it's much more magnetic in, in the sense that you're, you're creating a thing and that seems to attract other people who are like that. That's what ends up making these things uh, work. And, and I think it kind of has to be that way because the size and scope of the stuff that we're all working on and trying to change here, you know, it's not about any individual. It's actually about a community of folks who are doing what they're doing, not because they want to enrich themselves or any one person. It's it's because they want to see this change happen in emergent characteristic or an emergent thing that comes out of those people doing that is the world changes. And then these companies seem to consistently become valuable as that happens. Awesome. You know, maybe we'll close out on that note. Uh, Thanks so much, my friend. This was such an awesome time to sit and talk to you. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Regular listeners will know that this is the point when we take time at the end of each episode, in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago, to discuss a big problem, the nail, and possible solutions, the hammers, inspired by what we just heard. Alex, what do you have uh, today, a hammer or a nail? Today I have have a hammer, it's one of my favorite hammers, and it's called transfer learning. And the idea of a uh, of transfer learning is is to take something that's already gotten smart uh, at one thing and then apply it to something really similar uh, and hoping that you don't have to start from scratch. 
So this is um, a technique that we apply to machine learning models. In machine learning, specifically in supervised learning, there's uh, usually a, a big data set and a model that we are training uh, on that big data set. And eventually, if we you know, play our cards right, and if the data is really great, and if we're really smart and write you know, some good math and write some good code, we've got a model that's really accurate on that first data set. And what happens is sometimes we want to apply this model to a second data set, to a, a different type of, of data or, or a different you know, set of images, for instance. So th there's an XKCD cartoon, which is kind of a, a famous comic strip amongst computer scientist folks like me. And um, it's one person describing to an engineer the product that they want to make. The, the person says, when a user takes a photo, the app should check whether they're in a national park. And the engineer says, sure, easy, GIS lookup, give me a few hours. So it's, it's really easy to figure out where you are given GPS coordinates. And then the next thing they ask for is, and check whether uh, the photo is of a bird. And then the engineer says, I'll need a research team in five years. And so the, the gap in, in what's possible on computers is sometimes difficult to, to kind of tell ahead of time. It's like, oh, that's easy, but that's hard. Like, why, why is that the case? And then the subcaption of this cartoon is, in CS, it can be hard to explain the difference between the easy and the virtually impossible. So there's an idea called transfer learning, which has actually made that second thing where in the cartoon, they said, I'll need a research team in five years, something that can be done in a few hours. Nice. And the, the, the principle here is if you teach uh, a machine learning model, a supervised learning model to get really good at recognizing images of other things like boats and trucks and traffic lights and tigers and dogs. And then you want to do a related task, which is just identify, is there a bird in the picture or not a bird in the picture, right? So you might have already even seen birds in the first data set, but you're working on the second data set, which is more specialized. And maybe it's a lot smaller too. You can do something called transfer learning, where you train a model, you get it to be really accurate and robust on one large source data set. And then what you can do is you can fine tune it or transfer it to this smaller data set where you might have a lot less data. The thing that makes this really, really neat and really useful is this second more specialized data set can be so tiny or so small that you would never have been able to train an accurate model in the first place. That's kind of the, the interplay here is information is flowing from a large data set into a downstream target smaller data set. This idea of transfer learning is the beating heart at the core of a lot of industrial applications of machine learning. It's a really powerful concept. Okay, so this is super interesting. And, and actually, it's very timely. You know, our mutual friend, Puneet, who works at the Broad, is currently working on trying to train a lot of models to take look at ECGs and cardiac MRIs. And often you want to predict something where you don't actually have that many patients. For example, the number of people who have sudden cardiac death and so actually, it's quite interesting. They took one of the pre-trained models and then were able to just tweak it and, you know, out of only a few hundred samples, be able to build a classifier that could actually work. It was actually striking to me on how well it worked. And I, I have two questions for you. How does this relate to feature learning? Because a lot of this seems quite similar. And then also, you know, I've heard that in the early days of deep learning, you had a lot of emphasis on pre-training models. So does your original model that you do the transfer learning on always actually have to be trained to be a classifier, or could it just be trained more broadly to learn features? 
Great question. So the, the first is, what does feature learning have to do with transfer learning? And the answer is everything. Yeah. So the reason why it works is because, you know, and again, I'm not a researcher that works specifically on transfer learning. So I'm kind of giving you my impression of how and why this works. And I've put it into practice a bunch of times. And what happens is when you train a model on a big data set, it learns good features, good representations of, let's just say images of all kinds of natural objects. And inside of the model is an embedding, like we talked about before. It's usually the kind of almost the last layer um, representation in the neural network where an image gets turned into a fixed set of numbers, each dimension of which represents something abstract about images. If you just take those embeddings, those features, and then you strip off the top of the model, which is responsible for, say, identifying what class the image is in, in the original data set, and you click on a new top of the model, which says, is this a picture of a bird or not? Replacing the, the target classes is good enough to do transfer learning. Often that's, that's all you need to do. And the engine that makes that possible is really great featureizations of those images of data in the domain that you're, you're working in. And so in transfer learning works because feature learning works. And then tell me about the relationship with pre-training. Correct me if I'm wrong, like the original AlexNet, uh, not, not you, Alex, uh, a different Alex. Uh, Krzyzewski, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but correct me if I'm wrong, that was actually a model where they did kind of a pre-training step before they actually did a classification step, right? In the early days of the beginning of the modern era of deep learning, where it was clear it was working, it was clear it was useful in an, in an industrial context, it wasn't really clear the best way to train these models. And, and in many ways, it's still not really clear the best way to train these models. And so people thought that instead of just training the model to do the task directly, you should first kind of warm it up by getting it used to the kinds of data that it's going to see. And there's a couple different ways of doing this, but in general, we, we would call that pre-training. That isn't really done anymore in the course of the types of machine learning modeling that, that I'm at least referring to, which is like image classification. It turns out that we have enough data and people figure out enough tricks. We've got enough compute to just train the model to solve the direct task. And you don't need to necessarily augment it with some other kind of pre-training or pre-warming task uh, to get it good ahead of time. Now, pre-training still does exist. And it's a matter of how you call it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The place where it's still vibrant, I was actually just reading a paper by OpenAI, is a lot of the transformer models in NLP, natural language processing, still do some variant of this kind of pre-training strip. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It, it, the line between pre-training and training is a little bit blurry because in, in some of the cases for these language models that get pre-trained, they're just doing a different classification task, which is to say they're trying to predict a word that you've hidden from it, or they're trying to predict the next word or the word in the middle of a sentence that, that you've masked out. And so you could call that training, but just on a different task, or you could call it pre-training. The idea here is like you've got the data from all of the internet right. and you can decide to hide parts of it and ask the model to learn how to fill it in. Or if you want to sound really smart, you can say auto-regression. Auto-regression, yes. Or infilling. <laughs> now, let me go back to um, kind of when does this stop working? And, and let me give you kind of an example. One of the things that was surprising to me was that I've seen in the past people take a model that's, let's say, trained on images like ImageNet or you know, kind of natural scene statistics and then actually transfer it to a set of images that seemingly look very different, let's say medical imaging. The images you would naturally see kind of randomly sampled off of the internet don't look at all like a CAT scan. 
And yet the models often transfer pretty well. So I guess my question for you is, when does it break down? How different can your new set of examples be before the pre-training step just stops being relevant or is biased or things like that? It's a great question. And I'll, I'll kind of walk through a couple of those examples and, and, and maybe we can talk about like why the transfer learning works to CAT scans and then a domain where it probably shouldn't work, but it still does anyway. So the, the first thing to think about with CAT scans is, yeah, they look wildly different. They still have edges. There's still contrast. They're, they're not, you know, absolutely random speckled noise. There's, you know, there's just facts about the visual world that I think are, are in every image that we can see, no matter if it's something inside of our body or outside of our body. There's objects, they have boundaries, there's texture. And at least in part, models trained on images in the outside world have captured some of that kind of rough structure. Now, this is very hand wavy, but I hope you kind of get, get the drift that, yep. um, you know, on the way towards learning how to classify objects that are out there in the world, you have to build an understanding of how light travels on planet Earth and the fact that there's objects of different sizes and all these kinds of things. And learning about that, learning to capture those statistics uh, can help you in, in domains that are pretty far afield of the original data set. Now, one, one example that really surprised me was a model, I think the original version of the model, they've, they've since you know, refined it and it works a bit differently, but the original model behind something called deep variant the idea is you've got a lot of short reads of DNA sequences, and this is not images right now. So just like short strings of letters, 100 or 200 uh, letters long. So that's the length of this fragment of the DNA that's been read by a gene sequencer. And you want to align, you know, potentially millions of these fragments on top of each other in order to figure out what the underlying DNA sequence is. You get these short little snippets and views of, of the DNA. It, it turns out that if you stack these sequences as like, rows in an Excel spreadsheet and you, you roughly try to align them and you make it into an image that you can call the variant on, you know, whether or not some particular base pair in, in DNA is, is, you know, an A, a C, a T or a G, you can make that a classification problem that can be solved via transfer learning from a model trained on pictures of boats and cats and dogs. I didn't think that this would work at all. But the idea that, I mean, this is, this is even farther afield from CAT scans, which are still objects in a living thing. This is totally fabricated, like totally synthetic. And yet image models trained on images of the real world work on this completely synthetic thing. So in terms of the boundaries of where this stops working, it's at least for images, it's interesting to just see how well it works and how many different places. Now it's modality specific. So transfer learning in images works really well. We've figured out all, a lot of tricks. We've got a lot of great data sets that serve as uh, source data sets that we can transfer to, to smaller target data sets. And people have been doing it for some time. It used to be about 10 years ago that transfer learning in natural language did not work. We didn't have very large data sets and each data set was kind of a very different task. And then with the advent of models like transformers and, and now the kind of big marquee names are like um, GPT-3 and, and MENA, these models do transfer learn uh, to other smaller natural language tasks. But those are just two domains, images and text. Uh, some of the work that I do is on molecules. And it turns out that transfer learning, if you train one model on, let's say, a set of uh, great drug candidates, this did or did not bind some protein target, and you've got tens of thousands of examples. 
if you want to take that model and transfer learn it to some other set of molecules with some other set of properties, it usually does not work. And we don't know why. Um, there's very few domains in which transfer learning in machine learning for chemistry is working. And you know we've, we've seen this trajectory before in natural language where before it didn't work, and then we figured out a lot of tricks. We got a lot of data. We did a lot of work. And now it's working quite well. And so I would expect in these new domains, these smaller, more, more niche domains like chemistry, for it eventually to work. But we're going to have to do some work along the way in order to figure out how to get it to work. Excellent. Um, you know, this is really exciting, Alex. Uh, I think this was a great topic to cover today. Maybe with that, we'll close out and see you next time on Theory and Practice. Next episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Timothy Yu from Boston Children's Hospital. He's pioneered a very new and exciting idea of being able to run a trial on a single person, a so-called N of one trial. And later in this series, we'll hear from Aviv Regev at Genentech and Vertex Pharmaceuticals' David Altshuler. If you've got any questions for us or our guests, please email theoryandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko. And this is Theory and Practice.